Our sermon text today is Amos 5, verses 18 to 27. If you're able, would you now rise out of respect for God's Word as I read that text to you. This is the inspired Word of God. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into his house and leaned against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kayun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. As you are, would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we read your word today, given through the prophet Amos, and we shudder. We shudder because we are brought face to face with our own sin. We are reminded of your righteousness, your holiness, your purity, and how our sin is truly an affront to all of those and is such an affront to you. We pray that indeed you would help us to see our sin for what it is. And in so seeing, we might also see your grace. For your grace truly is greater than all of our sin. We pray that you would help us to know that truth today through your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You might recall last week we looked at a text. And uh, it was verse 1 to 17 of chapter 5. And we talked a little bit about the idea of a chiasm. Uh, you'll recall it it's, was a, a structure that, that starts in one place and kind of goes to a point and then retreats back to where it started. And, and remember, we, we talked about the Beatles and all you need is love, love, love is all you need. And how that was kind of a simple uh, example of one. And, and I think in today's text we see, I, I'm not sure if it's even intended, but, but I certainly saw it as I was looking. Sometimes we, we just go looking for things and we find the things we're looking for, whether they're there or not. And so there's a chance that, that this is set up that way, or it's not really set up that way so much as I'm seeing it there. But, but I've set up my sermon outline the way we're going to work through the text in that fashion at least. Um, and, and as we see it, we're going to look at just three, the three points being 
a, a revolting reality, first off. Secondly, a, a ruinous religion. And then finally, a righteous response. You know, if this were Sesame Street, you'd see this sermon is brought to you by the letter R. Right? So, first off, a revolting reality. Have you ever had something that you expected to be one way, only to have it turn out in a completely different way. Surely we've all had that experience. Maybe it was, maybe it was a meal, you know, and you'd heard that this was the best restaurant. It was absolutely wonderful, and you dressed up nice, and you went out to dinner, and you got there, and, and you had the meal, and it just was found wanting. And it was all the more disappointing because you had expected it to be so good. And here it was, kind of blah. Or maybe, maybe it's something like a, a, a job that you took and you expected it to be a, a wonderful opportunity and there was going to be lots of money to work and, and all kinds of personal fulfillment and, and the fringe benefits were going to be great and, and, and it was just going to be the best experience of your life and after a little while you come to realize, ugh, this isn't at all what I expected. The opportunities aren't what I was promised. The the, the chances for advancement aren't really there. The fulfillment that I thought I'd find in this job is not found at all. It ends up being all the more disappointing because it's not what you expected. Amos talks to the people of Israel here. And as he proclaims this prophetic message to the nation, he is telling them that things are not going to be as they expected. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Right? The people desired the day of the Lord. They looked forward to it. Now the day of the Lord, when it talks about that, is, is that day when the, the Lord returns and sets all things to rights. We prayed just a moment ago how we realize that things are not the way they ought to be. There is a brokenness in our world that is all too familiar to all of us. One day the Lord will return and set all things to rights. We look forward to that day as the people of God. So did the nation of Israel. Right? In that day, those who have done evil will be judged for their evil, and those who have done rightly will be vindicated. And they, of course, expecting the shalom of God to be theirs and upon them, expected that the day of the Lord would be a day of great rejoicing. For they would be vindicated. They would be shown to be right. They would be in good standing with the Lord. And so they longed for that day. They were, after all, the people of God. The church, as it were. But Amos is telling them that it's actually going to be more like that meal that you thought was going to be so wonderful and ended up so disappointing, like that job that you took that ended up being nothing of what you expected. Why would you have the day of the Lord, he asks. It is darkness and not light. He's not saying that it will be darkness for everyone, but he's saying specifically for you, O nation of Israel. It will not be the great joyful light that you think it will be. It will be a time of darkness. It will be a time of sorrow. He 
gives a little example here in verse 19 as if a, a man fled from a lion, right? I'm going to get away from this lion and runs into a bear. A bear meets him. That would be surprising. It would be disappointing. Or if he does get away, let's say, and he goes into a house where he's safe, so he thinks, and leaned against the wall and a serpent bit him. And it sounds kind of like a, an episode of the Three Stooges or something. It's just kind of comedic, right? This idea of, of the lion, the bear, the serpent. But, but it's not meant to be comical so much. What, what Amos is trying to do is he's trying to tell them here that you can run, but you can't hide. Right? No matter where you go, how fast or far you run, no matter what you do, the God who is coming to judge will find you. Your sins will find you out. Your God will find you out. And the weight of the penalty of your sins will be upon you. Now, perhaps it's coincidental, but, but did you catch what he starts off with here that the man is running away from in the beginning. It's a lion. Do you recall how we began the book of Amos at the very beginning? Amos 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, introduces Amos, and then in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And in verse Chapter 3, verse 8, just a little bit later, it plays on that and says, The lion has roared, who will not fear? It is God who is this lion who is roaring. And remember, of course, it is Christ Jesus who will be the one who will come to judge in the day of the Lord. He who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that great lion. We often think of Jesus as, as sweet Jesus, meek and mild, right? And, and indeed, for sure, Jesus was more meek and more gentle and more tender than anyone who has ever lived. His kindness and his gentleness and his compassion were, were exemplary. And yet, when he returns, he will not return as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He will return in all glory and in all power and in all magnificence. He will come in all wonder. And for those who are with him, it will be a wonderful thing, but those who are against him, it will be a frightful sight to behold. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it, Amos asks. Again, pointing to the reality for the nation of Israel that was not actually following God. It picks up on what we saw earlier, right, in Isaiah 58, verse 10. It said, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the Newton day. Right? He says, if you're doing the right things, if you're doing the things I've commanded you, then, then the darkness will be turned to light. But what he says here in Amos is, it will not be light, it will be darkness. It will not be bright, it will be gloom. The implication, of course, is that they are not doing the things that they ought to be doing. And 
and he has this prophecy that they will indeed see this terrible day and all the terror that it brings. Prophecy in, in the Old Testament often, in the New Testament for that matter too, often has, has kind of a dual sense. It, it has a, an ultimate focus, but then oftentimes there's, there's kind of intermediate things that, that kind of set the stage for it so that there might be a prophecy that, that something is going to happen thousands of years later, but in the near future there might be a minor fulfillment of it, something that, that is an, an illustration, if you will, or, or a, a pointer to what is ultimately going to happen. And so we see here, in verse 27, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Right? He, has, he has said already that, that in the day of the Lord, there will be darkness and gloom. It will be terror. Christ will come and he will, he will judge and it will be a terrible thing. And now he's talking here in verse 27 at the end of the passage. And again, remember, we're looking at this as a chiasm, matching the beginning and the end with each other, pairing them up. And we see this prophecy. He says, I will send you away into exile beyond Damascus. There will be this, this carrying away of the nation of Israel. You will fall under the judgment of God. And it will be bad. He's not saying that, that everyone there will be cast into eternal hellfire. But what he's saying is, is you'll be carried off into exile and it will be a picture of the judgment of God that ultimately will be upon the nation of Israel in their unrighteousness. And about 50 years later, the northern kingdom was indeed carried off into exile, just as Amos had promised and predicted it was an act of God's judgment against the nation, again, pointing to that greater judgment, a sign of that greater judgment that is to come, right? And they thought themselves to be the people of God, but, but being the people of God is not just a matter of putting a, a label on you, right? Being a Christian, being, being saved, being, being in the body of Christ, truly belonging to Christ is not just a matter of saying, Yes, I'm a Christian. Right? We can have that label on us. You could be here this morning in the church. You could call yourself a Christian. You could still be totally lost. Because it's not a matter of having the heritage or title of Christian that saves. It is Christ who saves. Christ and him alone. It is trusting in him and his payment for your sins on Calvary's cross. It is his absorbing of the righteous wrath of God for you. And you're trusting in him. That is the only means by which we might be saved. Truly trust in him. Truly depend upon him. Truly be found in him. Truly be united with him in faith. The nation of Israel, though calling themselves the people of God, were certainly not united with him in faith. We've seen that from the beginning and the end of the passage here, what, what their ultimate end is. More, we move to the middle here, verses 21 to 23 on the one side of it, and then verse 25 on the other side. But first, verse 21 to 25, God starts to speak of their ruinous religion. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. 
He's talking about the high holy days, right, that they would celebrate. Perhaps they'd even make a pilgrimage to one of their high holy places. It, it was kind of the, the religious observance that they did on a, a special occasion. And it might be the kind of person, the kind of experience where they, they show up for church on Easter, maybe on Christmas Eve, but, but really other than that, not really doing much. It's not impacting your life at all. Just a couple high holy days, I show up and, and I've kind of punched my uh, time card into the religious work clock. And that should be enough. That was the mindset. And so he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I, I hate them. He goes on and says, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. As you gather for worship services, I take no delight in them whatsoever. It's not that he rejects all of their worship services, that, that there is no such thing as a worship service that he enjoys. It's not that, that he is condemning public worship. Of course, the exact opposite is true. He actually uh, not only uh, condones, but actually commands public worship, does he not? In Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. Right? We, we are to encourage one another to meet together for public worship, that we might worship with one another. And, and there, there are times that we need to be away if you are on vacation, out of town, if you're ill, perhaps during a, a time of pandemic where you feel like uh, you, you need to be removed. But our common practice should be, and more and more, we, we, I'm excited, I'm happy to see more people coming back into our corporate worship, and that's a good thing. And I think we, we should do all we can to be here. If you can go to the store and you can go to the movies and you can go out to dinner, you can certainly go to public worship. It's far more important than any of those things. It's the most important thing we do. And yet, God says here, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Right? He's not saying I take no delight in solemn assemblies. He says in your. You see, the, the your is the point here. It's, it's the ones that they are doing. He takes no delight. He despises your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Here in a moment, he's going to say that, that he doesn't like your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, your peace offerings, your fattened animals. What, what was the problem was not the fact that they were worshiping. It was that they were pretending to worship. The problem was with them, right? Because, because they were bringing these these worship services together. They were offering up worship. They were offering up sacrifices that were completely vain and hypocritical. They were all show and no substance. There was no heart worship behind them, and so their sacrifices that they made were not sacrifices at all. In fact, it's the kind of sacrifice that Proverbs 21 talks about in verse 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. The reality is we can't make ourselves right before God by doing, no matter what it is we're doing. There's nothing that we can do that will make ourselves right. No sin offering that we can put forth for ourselves. And it's interesting, like we noted earlier in a previous sermon, they list all the offerings here that they bring forth, and the sin offering is, again, notably absent. 
Right? They're neglecting to deal with their sin. And we have to come to terms with our sin if we are going to rightly worship. You see, we can get together and we can sing hymns, we can have wonderful music, we can, we can have our, our beloved traditional worship style that we have, and we can be in our beautiful sanctuary, and we can be gathered together, and we can even say prayers and, and give offerings and do all these things. But if we haven't reckoned with our sin, if we haven't dealt with our sin, if we haven't come to terms with our sin, then we are not truly worshiping. Right? Because we are, we are just coming before God and saying he's okay and we're okay and everything's okay. But we're not okay. Apart from him, we are, we are lost and condemned. We are desperately wicked. And we need to be forgiven. We need the grace of God. Because the people here of Israel had not reckoned with their sin, God says to them through the prophet Amos, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. He says you can have all these pretty instruments. We had these beautiful instruments earlier on today. We, we have the organ. We have the piano. We, we, we have all that lovely music. And God says if, if you've not dealt with your sin, it's all just noise. Just noise. I don't want to hear it. Right? It reminded me of 1 Corinthians 13, you remember at the beginning of that love chapter that we all are familiar with, where, where Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he says, I, I, can, I can speak these most wonderful things, but if I don't have love, it's just, it's just, just noise. That's what God is saying here. He's saying, you, you are bringing forth what you call worship. But it's just noise to me because you're not right with me. Your worship is missing something. And quite frankly, it's missing love, right? The very same thing that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. It's missing love. Not, not an emotion love, but love, love which is an action, love what does things, right? The entire law is summed up in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they weren't doing these things. These are core to, to what they should have been and what they should have done. First John 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 8 tells us, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. That's the point. It's not just the family of God that we are to love. We are, we are to love everyone. We are to, to love even our enemies. Right? Because this is what God has done for us. We read it earlier. Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't good people. We weren't righteous people. He died for us while we were in our sin, while we were lost. And we, if we really come to terms with the gospel of grace, how Jesus died for us when we were enemies, then we can't help but have lives that are transformed, lives that are motivated and, and, and constrained by love, empowered by love, indwelt by his love. And the fact that they were not living lives of love betrayed the fact that, that they had not truly experienced the love of God. 
Right? They may have called him Yahweh or the Lord, but the God they were worshiping was not the God of grace, the God of love, the God who, who is revealed to us through the person of Christ Jesus. They created a God of their own making, which of course is nothing new. It's as old as time. Right? And it's exactly what the nation of Israel had done in the wilderness for the 40 years while they were traveling. We see him talk about that in verse 25. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years? Right? He says, you shall take up to Sikoth your king, or Cayun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. Right? The idea here is that they, while they're in the wilderness, having just been delivered by God from slavery, having just experienced this great deliverance, having just experienced his grace. They turn and start creating other gods for themselves. We see it in the golden calf incident, right? They, they, they are not content to worship the God who is. They want to make their own gods, and, and we're all prone to that because it's really easier to do that because when we make our own God, he doesn't demand so much of us, right? We can create him in our own image, and we can have a God who, who wants us to do the things that we want to do. But the God who is demands things of us. He demands that we be different. He demands that we not be in charge. He is in charge, right? Jay Sklar says, says, human religion lets you maintain your pride because at the end of the day, you can fix yourself. But biblical faith requires absolute humility because at the end of the day, only God can fix you. You see, that's the difference. You know, it's not a matter of us being able to do enough things to be right. Because we can't. The Bible tells us that we are lost, totally helpless, and only God can save us. I, I like one example that I saw just recently about this. It said, said that, that man-made religion says, oh my, I've gotten myself in trouble. Dad is going to kill me. But what the gospel says is, oh my, I've gotten myself in trouble. I better call dad. Right? That's the difference. That's the difference is the gospel says, says we are in trouble. We are lost. We are dead in our sins. And only through his grace given to us in Christ Jesus can we be saved. And so we should worship and sacrifice and offer our very selves up to God, but we do it not to gain something, but because he has already shown us such kindness. It should be a fruit of our faith, a response to grace, not some kind of uh, attemptive inducement to make God do something. And so we see finally a righteous response. A righteous response to the wrathful condemnation of God and a righteous, righteous response to the, to the glorious grace of God. Right? What is that response? Verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That is what we should do. Now, now, if you came to this sermon series having never known anything about Amos, and there was maybe just one verse out of Amos that you ever even heard, this is probably that verse. It's, it's uh, uh, probably the most famous verse in the book largely because it was the most commonly quoted verse by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during his, uh, during his work. 
Uh, for instance, the I have a dream speech. He says, no, 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 we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. As a result, when many people preach this passage, uh, they, they, they preach it as an um, area of application pointing toward racial reconciliation. Uh, and, and indeed, that is one area where, where it could be applied, where, where there is a need for justice and righteousness. Right? We, see, we see just the reality that, that though laws have been changed and improved and there's been great advancement in our culture in many areas, in many ways in this area, uh, the reality is that there are still a residual effect of centuries of codified racism in the law. African Americans are much less likely to live in neighborhoods that have good schools. As a result, African Americans are much more likely to be unemployed than white Americans, two to one. Uh, African American babies die at twice the rate of white babies. African American mothers are four times more likely to die in giving birth than our white mothers. African American males are six times more likely to be murdered than white American males. Right? There's, there's something going on there that, that along those, those racial lines uh, is a divide. But here's the thing I, I want to focus on. While that is a very real area of application for this passage, it's not the only application. It's not the only area. Right? We, we need to understand the idea of justice in terms of, of biblical justice in all the areas that it needs to be applied. Right? We, we often think of justice and we think of, of somebody doing something wrong, committing a crime, and we want them to be caught, apprehended, judged, and sent to jail or punished in some way, and then we can say justice has been served. Right? But when biblical justice is talked about, it, it's more than just holding people accountable for crimes. That is, it's dealing with the idea of, of fairness and equity across the whole of the culture, right? And, and specifically, as God speaks about it in his word, almost always he's talking about it in terms of people who have no power, people who are, are the powerless and the weak and the poor and, and the sick. In fact, listen in Psalm 146, how, how the God of Israel is described. He said, is, is he is the Lord who executes justice for the oppressed who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruins. The interesting thing is that in the pagan cultures of the world at that time, it was thought that the people who were rich and powerful must be the people who are right with God. That's why we see in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story of the rich young ruler. What happens is this rich man comes to Jesus. Jesus ends up saying that it's harder for a rich man to uh, enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle. And in those accounts, we read that the disciples are astonished. How can it be, they say, if, if a rich man can't get into heaven, how can any of us? How can anyone get into the kingdom of God if the rich can't? Right? Because they're the ones that are the, the best with God. It's evidenced by their riches. That's kind of the idea. God says, no. That's not the way it is. 
That's not the way it is at all. I look out for the poor. I look out for the weak. I look out for the needy. I look out for the sick. I look out for the widow and the fatherless, those who have no defense. Those are the ones that I will look out for, the Lord God says. And the Lord God requires us to be like him. It's not enough to just just not do the wrong thing, right? It's not enough to just not abuse the poor, not take advantage of the poor, not, not do the wrong thing to them. If we are to be followers of God, then we must do what we can to help them, right? Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? First came the priest, then the Levite. They saw the guy on the side of the road. They passed by without coming near. They essentially said, not my problem, but the Good Samaritan came, and he was the one who fulfilled the law of love. That's the law throughout the Scriptures. Exodus 23, if you meet your enemy's ox, he's talking about his enemy here. Your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Right? It says that you can't just say, well, not my problem. You have to go out of your way to help your enemy if you were to follow God. Right? This is the idea of justice. When we see justice and righteousness tied together, as they often are in the Bible, the idea is really what we might call in English, modern contemporary language, social justice. Now, we get uncomfortable with that if we're in the evangelical flow, right? We say, well, wait a second. Wait a second there, Pete. Right? We're, we're evangelicals. We believe in we believe in the gospel of grace. We believe in the gospel of Christ and him crucified. We believe in, in the gospel of substitutionary atonement. We, we don't believe in a social gospel because we're afraid that this social gospel will crowd out the gospel of Christ Jesus. But it's not a mutually exclusive thing. In fact, what God's word is telling us here is if we truly believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we truly believe that he died for our sins, if we truly believe that he has made an atoning sacrifice for us, if we truly believe that he is the Lord of our lives, then we must live a life of grace toward others, of love toward others, of righteousness toward others. Right? The, the pendulum swings too far sometimes and we need to come back to the middle where we have a life of, of loving kindness and social justice toward others, not in place of the gospel of grace, but because of the gospel of grace. That was what was missing from the people here in Amos. Their performance did not match their profession. They needed to have lives that would echo how they'd been loved. And that's what we need as well. We need to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. May God make his grace large in our eyes so that we might be motivated to live this way. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and God, we do rejoice in the gospel of grace. We do rejoice in in your kindness to us. We do rejoice that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. And though we were enemies, you have shown us your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your graciousness. Would you now renew our hearts
and change our very lives that we might become new creatures, Christ-like creatures, carrying the love of Christ to those who are around us. May we not be those who just say, I'll pray for you and leave it at that. Oh yes, let us pray for people. But let us not just leave it there. Help us to have opportunities to serve you. Help us to see those opportunities to serve you. And then help us to serve you as we should. For we ask it in Jesus' name. If you're able now, would you rise as we sing verses 5 through 8 of Psalm 51, C.